So Moses stayed up on that mountain a long, long time. So remember that at this point, there is no tabernacle, there's no law, there's no priest. None of this has happened. Moses is just now hearing about it for all the first time. You know, I, I, uh, I let you guys in on top of the mountain. We covered it all same, same time as Moses heard it. And God is still writing the two tablets of the covenant high up on Mount Sinai. So meanwhile, down at the foot of the mountain, there's only Aaron trying to keep the fractious Israelite community together. And by this time, they figure Moses has met an untimely end. I mean, it's been a month and a half. He's been up there already. So they still have manna every day, but they take it totally for granted. And the cloud and the fire are all way far away from them up on top of that mountaintop. So the Israelites down here in the valley, in the desert, it's not really a valley, it's just a desert. They feel exposed and helpless with enemies facing them. Either way they go, they can't go forward, they can't go backward. So they go to Aaron and demand that he make gods for them to follow. If Yahweh has deserted them, they're going to take matters into their own hands. Faced with an angry mob, Aaron feels like he has no choice. So he gathers gold from the people and makes a golden calf for them to worship. Now, why did he pick a calf to worship? Well, in the A&E, bulls were associated with kings, strength, and virulent manhood. So there were several bulls or calves worshipped in Egypt. The most important one at the time of the Exodus was the god Apis. See if you recognize any of the characteristics of this idol. According to the Greek historian Herodotus, who lived about 450 years before Christ, this bull was the result of an immaculate conception, a flash of light from heaven. Furthermore, Egyptians believed that after the bull Apis was born, the cow would never be able to have another calf. The calf selected as Apis, based on its special markings, was considered to be a physical manifestation of the creation god, Ta. It was called the soul of Ta and the herald of Ta. The bull was considered a kind of host of the creation god and was himself considered divine. Furthermore, his breath was believed to cure disease. And at death, he was believed to be reborn as an aspect of Osiris. And so he became known as the living deceased one. Wow. I don't think it's any accident at all that this very idol is the one Aaron uses as a model for his golden calf. Unbeknownst to Aaron, this idol is a terrifying mimicry of Jesus. It kind of makes me sick to my stomach. I fear for the Israelites who are worshiping this idol at the bottom of Mount Sinai. I fear for Aaron. Aaron sets up this golden calf and names it Yahweh, declaring tomorrow is a festival to Yahweh. The Israelites bow down to the golden calf and declare, these are your Elohim, your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. And the next morning, the people offer burnt offerings and fellowship offerings to the golden calf. And then they feast. 
Your Bible may say that they also begin to indulge in revelry or play, but the actual Hebrew word means to laugh mockingly. You already know this word. It's Isaac. They begin to make a mockery of the worship of Yahweh. Up on the mountain, the Lord says to Moses, quick, go down to the people. They've ruined themselves. They have made a golden calf and worshiped it and called it Yahweh and said it was the one that brought them out of Egypt. Then the Lord says, you know what? Never mind. I'm done with these stiff-necked people. Let me alone so my wrath can flare against them. I'll put an end to them and make you, Moses, into a great nation instead. Well, Moses is horrified. He begs the Lord for mercy, saying, What kind of God will the Egyptians and the other nations think you are if you bring your people out into the desert and then destroy them? Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and what you swore to them. And so the Lord relents. Moses takes the two tablets of the covenant that the Lord has written with his own hand, and he begins the trek down the mountain, meeting Joshua on the way down. As they near the base, Joshua hears shouting in the camp and cries, Oh no, there's war in the camp. The people have been attacked. But Moses says, No, it's neither the sound of triumph nor of defeat. It's just the sound of shouting. And even though Moses knows what's coming, when he sees the people worshiping the golden calf, he gets so angry that he throws the tablets of the covenant down and they smash against the bottom of the mountain. Then he grinds that golden calf into dust and scatters it over the drinking water and makes the people drink it. And he says to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you would do such a thing? And Aaron tells him that the people forced him to do it. And when he melted the gold, this calf came out all by itself. Well, this is a terrible, pivotal moment. Moses must do something for that people are in danger of turning completely away from God. Moses stands at the entrance to the camp and cries, whoever is for Yahweh, to me. And immediately the Levites gather around him and a battle ensues. A literal bloodbath. 3,000 men lose their lives. But in the end, Moses and the Levites prevail. The next day, Moses tells the people, you have committed a grave offense. I will go back to the Lord to see if there's any way I can atone for what you've done. And Moses prays, asking the Lord to forgive them. Or if he cannot forgive them, then to just go ahead and wipe Moses himself from the face of the earth. Actually, the Hebrew says Moses asked to be blotted out of the book the Lord has written. This imagery will come up a lot in the Bible. We need to remember it. We need to pay attention to which people are blotted out of the Lord's book and why. So far, it's a very short list. The people destroyed in the great flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, the Amalekites who attacked the weak ones of Israel as they straggled across the desert, and the Canaanites and other nations who tempt the Israelites into idol worship. Being blotted out is the worst punishment possible in this culture. It is as if you never existed. It is the Lord saying, I am sorry I ever created you. And now the Lord says to Moses, no, 
I'll not blot you out. I will blot out the ones who have offended me. I will make a reckoning with them. And so the Lord smites the people for what they did. It doesn't say exactly what that smiting entails. They clearly survive as a people, but it is definitely a deterrent to future idol worship. They clearly would have had no idea what a sorry excuse that golden calf was for the great blessing of Jesus that the Lord has planned for them. I wonder if they have any idea how close they've come to being blotted out entirely from the Lord's book for despising him so terribly. Then the Lord says to them, it's time to move on. I'll send my messenger ahead of you and take you to the promised land, but I myself cannot go with you anymore, for I might blot you out while we're on the way there. Well, the people are beside themselves when they hear that God is considering abandoning them. They take off all their jewelry and mourn. They do not wear any jewelry for the rest of their journey. Moses says, Lord, you keep saying you'll send someone with us, but you've not said who that will be. Please let it be you yourself. And the Lord says, my presence will go with you. And Moses says, if you yourself don't go with us, then don't let us move from this spot. I want your promise that you will go. Show me yourself, your glory, so I know for sure you are the one going with us. And God says, you cannot see my face and live but I will allow all my goodness to pass before you and I will say my name to you. Remember that cleft in the rock up on the mountain? Go stand there and I will shield you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I'll remove my hand so you may see my back. Also, make a couple more stone tablets like the first ones and bring them up on the mountain and I'll rewrite the tablets you smashed. So early the next morning, Moses goes back up the mountain with two new tablets. And there the Lord passes before him and says his unpronounceable name. This is what the Lord says. Yahweh, Yahweh, a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in kindness and integrity, extending kindness to the thousandth generation, bearing with the crime and trespass and offense, paying careful attention to the impact the iniquity of the fathers has, even down to the third and fourth generations. We studied that last phrase in detail in class 16. So if you miss that and your Bible says God punishes the third and fourth generations for the sins of the fathers, go back to class 16 to see the work we did there. Notice that God's name includes compassion, grace, patience, kindness, integrity, forbearance with our sin, and care for those impacted by sin. All of this is embedded in God's name. Moses falls on his face saying, Lord, please, if I, if I myself have found favor in your eyes, please forgive us and come back into our midst and claim us as your own. And the Lord says, I'm about to cut a covenant. I'll, I'll do brand new wonders that have never been seen before. And these people and all the nations of the world will see that it is my doing. Here is my charge to you. 
I am about to drive out the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites from the promised land. Be on guard. Protect yourself so that you do not cut a covenant with them or they will become a trap for you. You must shatter their altars and their pillars, their standing stones, and cut down their cultic poles. Do not bow down to another god. These pagan people whore after their gods. Do not let your sons and daughters marry these people, or they will also whore after the pagan gods. Do not make idols for yourself. Instead, keep the festivals I've given you. Remember that the firstborn of man and animal is mine. Remember to rest on the Sabbath and I will remove the pagan nations ahead of you, and your land will be safe as you gather together to worship me. And the Lord tells Moses to write down all these words, the words of the covenant. The Lord is again cutting with his people, and Moses is up there a really long time again, 40 days and 40 nights, and during this time he does not eat or drink at all, and then he goes back down the mountain. This time, Aaron and the people have done much better. No golden caps. But when they see Moses, they're terrified. For after seeing the back of God, his face is glowing brightly. Moses speaks to them and tells them all that the Lord said. All the laws and sacrifices, all the festivals, all about the Sabbath cycle of weeks and years, all about the year of Jubilee and the tabernacle they need to build. And when he finishes speaking, Moses pulls a veil over his face to cover the brightness until he goes to speak to the Lord next time. Immediately, the Israelites begin to collect the materials needed to build the tabernacle and make the utensils and the priestly garments. Moses calls Bezalel and Aholiab, the craftsmen the Lord specifically asked to be in charge of this work, along with every wise-hearted man whose heart moves him to help. The people bring so many donations, the craftsmen are inundated, and Moses has to tell the people to stop bringing stuff. And so it comes to pass that exactly one year after they left Egypt, the tabernacle is set up and the lamps in the holy place are lit, and the cloud covers the tent of meeting during the day, and fire covers it at night. And the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle for the very first time. Only when the cloud goes up from the tabernacle will the Israelites break camp and follow it. Thus ends the book of Exodus. We've already finished the entire book of Leviticus. In it, Moses ordains Aaron as high priest and his sons as priests with them. Notice that this is after that whole golden calf fiasco. God's calling of Aaron as high priest is not revoked. When God forgives, he forgives, period. Aaron's very terrible sin against God is forgiven and is no longer remembered by God. Embrace this for yourself. This is how God forgives us too. Your own calling is not erased by your past sins or mistakes. You can always turn back to God. 
Do not believe the lie that your sins are too great for God to forget. God does not throw people away who are reaching out to him. That said, there are certainly natural consequences that we suffer. In chapter 10 of Leviticus, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, try to introduce different practices into worship, practices that are not what the Lord asked for at all. It doesn't say exactly, but I suspect they try to incorporate some of the Egyptian practices from the old familiar idol worship. And a fire comes out from the Lord's presence and consumes them. They die immediately. And Moses says to Aaron, this is what the Lord warned us about. We must be really careful in how we honor the Lord. And Moses warns Aaron and his two remaining sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, that they must not show mourning for Nadav and Abihu, because the Lord, by definition, is just. And the people must understand that. Their other relatives and the rest of the Israelites can mourn them. It's just the priests must not. They have been set apart as holy like God. The people need to understand this boundary around the holiness is important real, and for the protection of the priests. This is an awfully hard lesson, but it is the price for dwelling together in the very presence of the living God. God is holy. God has gone to great lengths to make the people safe, setting very explicit boundaries, and we can see that when they take it upon themselves to step over those boundaries, God's holiness utterly consumes them. And this brings up an important point. God is both and. God is merciful, compassionate, and slow to anger. God cares for the weak, the immigrant, and the poor. God provides for our every need. God protects and rescues. God delights in our joy. But God is also supremely holy. God is so far beyond us that we cannot even look on his face and live. Be careful that in your understanding of God, you hold this paradox close to your heart. Do not worship a God of tenderness who has no power. And do not worship a God of power who has no tenderness. Be sure to worship the reality the both and God, the God of the Israelites. The Lord is very specific about this with the Israelites, so there's no question. In Leviticus 26, God explains again that if they devote themselves solely to Yahweh, he will give whatever their land needs to provide overwhelming abundance, and they will live in peace. God will make them fruitful and will fulfill the covenant He says, my dwelling will be among you, and I shall not reject you. I will walk among you and be God to you, and you will be my people. But if you do not heed me, if you reject me, then I will be your enemy. You will void my covenant. You will become ill. You will sow seed in vain. Your enemies will take all you have and shall rule over you until you come to your senses and return to me. 
And if that isn't enough, if you still reject me, I will increase my efforts sevenfold. I will break your pride in your own strength. The beasts of the field will overwhelm you and will bereave you of your children. Your roads will become deserted. Even if you barricade yourselves in your walled towns, I will still enter with disease and pestilence. You will eat and not be satisfied. I will destroy all your cultic places of idol worship. I myself will lay waste to the promised land. I will allow the nations of the world to attack you and carry you off. And then the land will finally see the Sabbath years you failed to give it. And I will keep this up until finally, finally, wherever you have been scattered, you come to your senses and humble your uncircumcised hearts and seek to make amends. Then I will honor my covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will remember them. I will remember the land, and I will remember you, for you are still my people, the ones I rescued from Egypt in front of the eyes of the entire world. You are my people, and I am your God. And thus ends the book of Leviticus. As the book of Numbers opens, the Lord tells Moses to take a census of the tribes of Israel. He then designates exactly how the tribes are to camp on the four sides of the tabernacle and how they're to break camp. Whenever the pillar of cloud begins to move, the tribe of Judah is to lead out, followed by the tribe of Reuben, visibly transferring the honor of leadership from Reuben to Judah for reasons you already know. The Levites, of course, are responsible for disassembling and moving the tabernacle and all its furnishings. Out of the Levites, the clan of Kohathites are designated to carry the contents of the Holy of Holies. After the cloud departs and they get ready to move, Aaron and his sons pack up the Holy of Holies and cover everything and make sure the carrying poles are in place so that the Kohathites do not touch anything holy and die. The priest, Eliezer, the son of Aaron, is to carry the lamp oil, the incense, and the anointing oil himself. And God says, my name shall be set over the Israelites, and I myself shall bless them. And the Lord gives Aaron a special blessing to say over the Israelites whenever he wants to bless them. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you grace. May the Lord lift up his face to you and grant you peace. So here's a little known fact. You know that Aaron could only go into the Holy of Holies once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, right? And when the cloud lifts and it's time to move, Aaron and his sons could go back in and pack everything up. But did you know that even though he was not a priest, Moses could go into the holy place and perhaps even the Holy Hope Holies, at any time? Yep. Number 789 tells how Moses would go into the tent of meeting to speak with God, and he would hear God speak back to him from above the mercy seat. And here's another little known fact. The Levites would serve in the tabernacle beginning at the age of 25, and it was considered military service by the Lord. Yep. Working in the tabernacle was military service. I think probably some pastors would attest to that. 
and they were to retire at the age of 50 and work no more except for keeping watch. So it is that a little over one year after they left Egypt, the Israelites build the tabernacle, begin their worship. I'm sorry, it was exactly a year that they build the tabernacle and begin their worship and their sacrifices. And 50 days after that, the cloud lifts from the tabernacle for the first time and the Israelites break camp. And so they march faithfully to the promised land and lived happily ever after the end. Nope, sorry, didn't happen that way. What actually happens is the people begin complaining pretty much right away. And the Lord's fire erupts along the edges of the camp. Moses quickly intercedes for the people and the fire dies down. Then some troublemakers start inciting the people. The people begin complaining about too much manna and not enough meat to eat. And Moses can't believe it. He goes to the Lord and says, done. I am so done with these people. Why did you give them to me? I can't deal with them. Where am I going to get meat to feed all these people? Why don't you just go ahead and strike me dead? And the Lord has pity on Moses. He can see the heavy burden on his soul. So he tells Moses to gather the 70 elders of Israel together. These would be the same guys who feasted with Moses on Mount Sinai and saw the throne of God. Remember? Well, the Lord will take a portion of the spirit he's given Moses and give it to these 70 elders so they can help with the burden of governing the Israelites. Then the Lord says, tell the people they will get what they demanded of me. They want meat. I'll give them meat. Starting tomorrow, you will eat meat for a solid month until it's running out of your noses and you despise it as much as you have despised the Lord who dwells among you. And Moses says, are you kidding me? I can't can't tell them that. There's 600,000 fighting men, plus women and children and elderly. Where am I going to get all that meat? And the Lord says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Are my arms too short? (laughs) Now you will see what I will do. So Moses goes and does all the Lord told him. When he gathers the 70 elders, the Holy Spirit falls on them and they begin prophesying. Two of them hadn't even gone to the tent of meeting when Moses called them. They were still out in the camp and even they start prophesying. Joshua tries to stop them, thinking that only Moses should prophesy. But Moses says, no, don't stop them. I wish all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would place his spirit on all of them. After that, a wind comes up from the sea and thousands of quail are swept into the camp. So many quail fall from the sky that they're piled three feet high as far as a day's journey from camp in every direction. The Israelites are inundated by quail and even as they stuff themselves with the meat, the Lord's wrath burns against the troublemakers and they fall dead. And there in the midst of the piles of quail, the people bury them. You would think that would send a pretty strong message, but no, no, things only get worse. This time, Moses is attacked by those he trusts the most, his own brother and sister. The problem starts because of that second wife Moses took, the Cushite woman. Maybe she's lording it over her brother and sister-in-law. Whatever it was seems to have uncapped a big well of resentment in Aaron and Miriam. And they say, hey, 
Moses isn't the only one the Lord speaks through. The Lord speaks through us too. Now remember how we talked about humility and how the Lord's power works best when we ourselves get out of the way, when we are self-effacing? Well, this is the opposite. Aaron and Miriam are holding themselves up as important because the Lord speaks through them. This is one of the worst things you can do. It's taking the Lord's glory on yourself simply because the Lord chooses to work through you. Moses did not do this. In Numbers 12.3, it says Moses was very humble, very self-effacing, more than any other person on the face of the earth. Moses always made it clear that all the power and all the glory belong to the Lord. So when the Lord hears what Aaron and Miriam say, he calls the three of them outside. And as they talk, the Lord becomes so angry with Miriam, he leaves the camp. I'm sure so he doesn't strike her dead. In horror, Aaron turns to look at Miriam and sees she's been struck by a terrible wasting skin disease. Alarmed, he turns to Moses and apologizes and begs for Moses to forgive them and to intercede for Miriam. And Moses immediately cries out, Lord, please heal her, please. And so the Lord heals her. But he says, if she'd been shamed by her father for such disrespect, she'd have to sit outside the camp for seven days. So be it now. And Miriam, though healed, went and sat outside the camp for seven days. And the people did not move one step until she was able to come back into camp. It's time for our breakout sessions. In this class, we've seen God consistently show up as loving, merciful, compassionate, and forgiving, wanting nothing more than to live in close proximity to his people. And yet, as we've studied Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, we've seen God set up boundaries, layers of protection around his holiness, his presence, to keep the Israelites from getting too close. For example, separating the Holy of Holies from the rest of the tabernacle and covering Moses with his hand so Moses wouldn't see his face. In each case, the Lord warned that if the Israelites came too close or in the wrong manner, they would die. And sure enough, Nadab and Abihu crossed a clearly defined boundary and were immediately incinerated. We'll explore this a little bit in our breakout groups, trying to reconcile God's holiness and power with his compassion and love is something that has a direct impact on Christians today. A recent Facebook post made the astute observation that Christians tend to be raised with one of two different views of Jesus and therefore of God. View A focuses on Jesus' person, his virgin birth, his sinlessness and divinity, his power to work miracles, his resurrection, his holiness. For these Christians, that translates into a focus on purity for the purpose of escaping hell and being saved so as to go to heaven. And it often results in a more rigid view of scripture. View B focuses on Jesus' teachings, the golden rule, selfless compassion, welcoming of the poor and needy, befriending sinners, defying the religious hierarchy when they're oppressing the people. Jesus even encourage breaking rules that hurt people. For these Christians, that translates into a focus on social justice, personal accountability, resistance to judging others, 
and usually a willingness to see more than one way to interpret scripture. Both views are clearly based on the same Jesus. Just like we've all read about God, all, everything we've read about God is still the same God. So how can we resolve this paradox? Is there room for us to learn from each other and integrate these views? The questions in the study guide will help you get started. Everything I just said is printed at the beginning of the study guide for your reference in case you need it. So there's no, I've already told it to you, so there's no need to reread all that. Just skip straight to the questions. All right, everybody's back. And before we get um, started on our discussion, I want to make a note that it is entirely possible that we will get some election results while we are, are talking that may um, result in us knowing who the next president will be, but that this is being recorded and that regardless of which way this election goes, one out of every two people in the U.S. is going to be terrified and upset. And um, I would like you to not make any comments that are have anything to do with the election at all. Okay, so just out of respect for um, our fellow Americans, either way it goes. So uh, I'm really interested in um, what you guys uh, talked about here. The, the three questions were very different, um, and you could have gone in a lot of different, different ways here. Um, so the first, let's do the first one. I think it's maybe kind of short, but when Nadab and Abihu died, was that punishment from God or was it something else? Remember to turn your mics on, folks. Well, nobody else speaking up, I will. Um, we concluded that it was the natural consequences of their actions and compared it to your child touching a hot stove. You say, don't touch the stove. They touch the stove. They get burnt. They didn't get punished. They had natural consequences of their actions. Okay. Was that the consensus? Yeah, that was kind of what we thought in, in our, our group, too, that whatever it was they did incorporating these Egyptian worship practices into what God had set forward, it was maybe like the equivalent of throwing gasoline on a barbecue. Right. Um, or, or putting the frozen turkey in the, in the turkey fryer for Thanksgiving. Uh, <laughs> that there, you know, suddenly there was this huge conflagration that they got caught in as a consequence of them thinking they needed to somehow juice up or just do their own, their own practices that right. were not what was laid out. Right. I, I, I kind of agree with all you guys. I, I think it was it's it has to do with the with God's very essence being holy and bring holiness into I mean evil into that space. That evil's gonna be consumed. That's what God does. He consumes the evil. It is no longer there. Um so uh sometimes that involves people. Um and and that um and that can be hard. Those consequences are hard. Okay, so let's go on to question two. There was a key phrase at the beginning of that question. In bold, I put judgment to God means setting things right. Now you should, when somebody makes a statement like that, even if it's me, <laughs> you need to challenge that and say, hey, how do you know that? Where did that come from? What are your references? What are your sources? Is that fake news? And, um, uh, and I, I want to tell you that for the reason that there are no references there is because 
that is something I learned over all these years of studying God and the Bible and how judgment is handled in the, in, in God's economy. So that is my personal conclusion. It is an educated conclusion. It is well-founded in scripture and it is part of what I am, the picture I'm trying to, to give you. I'm hoping that you see that same thing when we, as we come through the, through the Bible, but that is like a, a, a pre-assumption I gave you. So you don't have to believe that you get to pick, you know, whatever you think judgment is, but, um, but I'd like you to at least consider that point of view that when, God, when God judges, he sets things as the way he meant them to be in the first place, the, the blessing he's trying to get us back to the blessing. So, um, it's a very different concept than revenge or retribution. And, and I point out that that's why judgment can be merciful and compassionate. Um, but it can be deadly, like we've talked about. And so God is by definition just. There is no definition of justice or being just outside of God. God, God is the gold standard here. Um, and he's also the gold standard for being merciful. So I gave you the, a, a table that took those four peoples that were being blotted out of the, um, of the Lord's book, whatever book that is, um, and, 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 sa- and showed that for the great flood, the reason was given in the scripture that the earth was corrupt and full of violence. And all of the people, 100%, had corrupted their ways. For Sodom and Gomorrah, you remember, they, Abraham, couldn't even, Abraham couldn't even find 10 righteous men. They were, and scripture in Ezekiel says they were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. They didn't help the poor and needy. They were haughty. They did detestable things before God. And Genesis tells us the cries of anguish of the people in that city who were affected by all this evil reached the ears of God. Um, and the Amalekites, as you know, just attacked the Israelites there in the desert, and they, it was a cowardly attack. They attacked the rear guard, the rear of the column where all the weaker people were. And then we know that the Canaanites and all these other guys that are, the Lord is going to wipe blot out um, despise Yahweh and actively try to turn the Israelites to idol worship. We haven't really got to that part yet. I'm telling you that. You can take that to the bank. But that's for real. So um, what does it say about God when judgment includes blotting out? Well, I said you're not messing around. <laughs> that would be a yes. What else did you? By the way, the blotting out, I, I was just assuming uh, it, it meant from the book of life. Yes, that's what I assume also. But it, it doesn't say, it doesn't name the book in the scripture. So I'm just calling it the book because I'm trying not to add or delete anything from what I'm presenting you. I'm trying to be very true to, the, to what's there. Okay. We discussed that um, the blotting out was not necessarily punishment on those people who were blotted out as much as it was protection to God's people. Um, 
and as much as it was um, salvation to God's people, that God was showing mercy to his people and getting these wicked individuals who would draw them astray and draw them from the truth out of the picture. Yeah. Did anybody re remember that the, uh, we've come across a couple of um, kind of conflicting uh, passages in, in these that we read today, it talked about blotting out um, in, 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 there have been a couple in this lesson and last lesson where the Lord says, you know, I'm going to actually, I'm going to, I'm going to move them out from in front of you. Not, he, he doesn't say he's going to kill them. He's just going to drive them out. You remember that language? Okay. Which implies that they're still alive. So I'm, I'm hearing in this that the Lord is giving them an option. You know, it's kind of like, you need to go, you need to go, you need to go. I'm making space for my people. Um, and if they don't, it's kind of like holiness is moving in because the Lord is moving in with them, you know? Mm. Um, so it's very interesting. So uh, the third question is the big question. And if I, and if I, you know, went past any other comment you would like to make, go, you can go ahead and make it at this time. But as when we start talking about this, but the third question is where I was trying to get to with this. How can we make sure we respect who God really is, not just the God we've made in our own image or in the image of what we want God to be, um, while at the same time making sure we do not become harsh and judgmental of each other in the process. Because, you know, you can ask anybody to describe who God is and how they understand God, and it's going to be, you can get different answers from everybody. Mm-hmm. One thing that um, we talked about is um, I think sometimes, like you said, God doesn't just necessarily destroy somebody, but he pushes that person away. And in my life, when my daughter came out, I had a friend that was very um, hateful and almost towards my daughter because she viewed LBGTQ people as they were making a choice, they were walking away from God and they were turning themselves over to their own self God. And um, I just, I dropped all communications with the person. It was like, I didn't want to make, I didn't want to become hateful back to her. So the easiest way for me to handle it was just to not have, you know, just, just drop all communications. I didn't want to talk to her. I didn't want to, you know, let her hurtful things make me a hurtful person. So, and it took about a month, month and a half. And she said, you know, I haven't talked to you in like a month. Why? And I said, because you're hurting my child and you're hurting me. And I can't have that around my child. I said, I understand that you believe what you believe. I believe differently. Um, but you're not walking in my shoes. And if somebody was saying really bad things to your child, you'd feel the same way I do. And she said, she said, let me think about it. And then a couple days later, she got to me and she said, I understand what you're saying. And I think we can still be friends and communicate as long as we don't ever discuss the subject. I might not change my beliefs, but I'm not willing to hurt your child. And so in that instance, it worked. I mean, I don't know if it would, but if you go 
if you look at God's judgment, is not punishment, but as protection from the innocent. I don't think God ever hurts anybody unless he's trying to protect or save somebody that's being hurt by that person. That's just kind of how I take this, my yeah. takeaway. Yeah. Yeah, so God is a creator of all of us. We need to make sure that we get to know that creator and we need to know, we need to make sure that we uh, respect all of his creation uh, and, and be careful about how we treat it, um, including him or her. And if, uh, if, if God needs to set some things right, uh, he, he will do that. And it's, and it's not necessarily for, for us to do that. Amen. Uh, Ooh, yeah. I like that. Yeah, although we do need to distance ourselves perhaps from those people because uh, when if, if, if said judgment comes upon them, we don't want to be part of it. The guy use a different instrument. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's yeah. An interesting. It's interesting to try to um, evaluate a situation and and know when it is that you need to take action to set things right and when it is that you don't. And oh, yeah. and um, for me, uh, it usually boils down to um, a difference between the person and the consequences of their actions. And so I feel very strongly that we should take action like Renee said the Lord would when somebody needs protecting when something some, some bad thing is happening to somebody you know and we need to stand up to it and and stand with whoever is unable to stand themselves you know I think that we are called to do that that Jesus did that all the time um, and, and I think that there's clearly um, a need, a, a, a precedent in the Bible for standing against evil. But to what Ross is saying is so true that, you know, if I look at a person and I see their choices based on the fruit of their lives, you know, I can see that the, the fruit of their choices. So that gives me a pretty good clue as to what's going on in that heart. Um, that's not mine to change. That's not mine to judge. You know, it's, it's, I can, I can tell from the fruit, but it's, that doesn't, just because I see it doesn't mean that I'm God and I'm given to change it, you know? Um, so it, at that point, then you're beginning to think about, well, what do my boundaries need to be with this person? You know? Um, and they can be closer or larger, and they can move over time. I tell that to people all the time in pastoral care. You know, today you're telling me that you need a, a pretty small boundary, <laughs> you know? And and that's okay with this loved one. It doesn't mean you have to forever have a small boundary with them. You know, maybe in the future that boundary can expand, depending on the choices they make, you know? Um so it's it, this is exactly what we're trying to get get to with this discussion. What other thoughts came up? I basically said that it's 
all about love. I mean, God's biggest command to us is to love him and love each other. And each other is like everybody, your friend, your neighbor, your stranger, your enemies, your, you know, whatever. So I think that if we love him and we allow him to love through us and we bathe everything we do in love, which I can't say that I've always done, but if we do that, then we're going to have more mercy. We're going to have more compassion. We're going to be less judgmental. Um, I had never heard that comparison you made that is in the beginning of the notes, the A and B Christian there. Um, I had never really heard that before and looked at it from that viewpoint. And that kind of bowled me over. I'm like, that's exactly, I was raised as a type A Christian and I'm becoming more of a type B Christian. And is there some place in the middle where you can, like you said earlier, that you can combine both of those things and you've got the holiness of God and you've got the, the teachings of, of Christ and, you know, that we can combine those two things together. And I think basically if we bathe everything we do in love, that's exactly how we're combining those two things. Yeah, it's really, it's really important to understand these two views, partly um, because of what you're saying, that we need to integrate them because they are both true, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the side A is the, is the view of Christianity, is the view that allows, oh, Renee, I think you might need to mute for a little bit. Um, yeah, I'm doing so. Thank you. <laughs> um, so the side A, Christianity, uh, is has a very strong and deep need for safety. And we are seeing that play out across our nation now. And there is nothing wrong with that. God is all about that for us and for his people. So we need to, we need to understand that. And we need to understand that um, each one of us has that deep need for safety. We just need to under, be clear about where we're looking for safety. Are we mm. looking for safety in our money, in our bank account, in our job, in our marriage, in our laws, in our politicians, in our leaders? Or are we looking for safety in God? Where moth cannot eat away at our treasure, you know, and thieves cannot steal our safety from us. The economy can crash and we can still be safe. One, one thing I also want to, I want to add, many times in the Bible it says, uh, you know, of course, don't be deceived. And so as you are seeking that safety, make sure that that you that that is in and truth and that you're not being deceived exactly exactly and and on the other side um where we've got the jesus of the compassion and the jesus of the standing up against evil kind of thing um that jesus of action um here in the world this is the jesus that said the kingdom is here right now live it (laughs) you know and on that side, the, the real need is 
our natural human need to relieve suffering. Mm-hmm. And and that that's so ingrained in us, right? We when we even as the youngest toddlers, when they see suffering, they they try to fix it. I, I'm thinking of that oh, that but lovely picture of the little toddler who saw the sculpture of Jesus stumbling under the cross and went over to try to lift it up for him. You know, um, it this is part of who we are, um, and and the the danger there is that we become judgmental that we burn out because we're doing all of it ourselves, rather than listening to God and asking God, where should I be standing? I want to tell you we're past time to get to close class out. I'm so sorry. Um, I want to tell you uh, a a story of a dream that I didn't have. Somebody else had it. Um, And it was a woman uh, who had, it was a, a dream of, of, this woman had this dream and it was a vision of the Statue of Liberty. And she was like in a helicopter and she was zooming in. And as she was zooming in to the Statue of Liberty, she became aware that it was like a mosaic. And then as she got closer and closer, it was like, oh my goodness, that Statue of Liberty is people. It's actual people and they're all dependent on each other. If one person steps out of the way, that whole thing's going to come crashing down. And then the, the vision zoomed in even closer and it was on this one woman and that woman's name was Mona and Mona had little kids tugging on her and she wanted nothing more than to just, she couldn't see any purpose in what she was doing, why she was standing there, had no concept of how important her part was just standing there and being a mother to those little kids. And Mm -hmm. so, and so I, I have always carried that in my heart. Um, Right now it is so hard for me not to feel tugged and pulled like, Oh my gosh, I I need to go out and, you know, do something, you know, (laughs) about all this. And, and, and the Lord's very clear to me is like, Gail, you're doing what I want you to do. You every week, you be faithful and you do your class and you do all these videos and you record that stuff. You know, that is where I've put you. I've prepared you for that. You're in a unique position to do that, do that. And so what I'm saying is if you're a view B Christian, be sure that you're taking it what you you feel called to do back to the Lord and making sure that that's where he's put you. There is no calling that is too humble or too small for the Lord. And Gail, we're thankful that you're doing what God's called you to do. <laughs> oh yes. I was going to say the same thing. This is, a lifesaver for me. It really is with not being able to go to church right now and us having just gotten a new pastor in the middle of all this. And most of the congregation hasn't even had a chance to meet him yet. And, you know, all these different things going on. And um, yeah, this has been a a godsend. I think that anytime that you have a, a, I think Christianity is meant to be practiced in small groups. 
where you can have relationship and real dialogue and not just somebody talking at you all the time. Um, like me, I think that, that where this really takes root is in, in those breakout sessions. And so before, you know, you feel free to go if you need to go. But I did want to ask, is anyone struggling with this, with what we've talked about today? Not struggling, but eye-opening, because I never thought of the A and B. But I think some of the problems that sometimes my husband and I have with religion is I'm a B personality and he's an A person. And so he has a hard time seeing the B column and I have a hard time seeing A column. Right. So you can yeah. share with him. <laughs> yeah, I'm going I, to I, because it's really eye-opening because I never thought of it that way. Yeah, I think my husband and I are the same way. He's more A and I'm more B. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I think my, my husband and I have been over the over the decades moving from an upbringing that was much more focused on the, the A-type view towards gradually more of the B-type view. And I think where my struggle comes is trying to remember not to throw out the, the, the positives of the side A view and not you know and completely forget about the holiness aspect of God and that there are there can be consequences if we ignore or denigrate the holiness of God and focus only on compassion. Because that's where my heart wants to lead is, you know, um Jesus was kind and Jesus was loving and Jesus told us to love each other. And that is what we need to do while at the same time, Jesus got angry. Jesus, you know, said some things to people who needed to hear it um, in a, in a, a specific context and to specific people over specific things. Um, but that it's a, like you said, it's a both end kind of thing um and that feels kind of like trying to walk on two sides of a line yeah i just want to say you know i grew up baptist and i i was so fortunate this uh trady baptist in san antonio uh i think i got i got both uh some of a and b and uh even our pastor would do commercials more on the b side Mm -hmm. uh, you know, locally, and you, you saw them, and, and it was just great, uh, the commercial that he did. Um, it just very comforting and welcoming to people. And so I was just very fortunate that um, I was able to, to get, uh, I guess you could say, uh, some of both. Uh, Gail, uh, we are right now studying a book uh, that uh, Gail actually had recommended to our small group. Uh, it's called The Generous Orthodoxy, and it deals so much about exactly the same thing. Uh, you know, the, the, we talk about the type A or, yeah, the view A uh, in, in, in fundamentalists that, uh, you, know, the, you know, the Bible is the only way, so on and so forth. 
And so uh, in the book, he also talks about while he understands some of that stuff, he also tries to, to show how, uh, how there's actually positive things through all of the different stuff, both the uh, view A as well as the view B. Uh, and so a, a very interesting book. I would, I would recommend it if you want to continue on with that. It's called The Generous Orthodoxy. Uh, Gail, who is the author again on that? Brian McLaren. Yes, yeah. Brian McLaren. He's a lovely, lovely man. Yes. Oh, there you go. I just happen to have it right here. <laughs> Thank you. I will look into that book because I'm very interested now. Yeah, it's a, I think that that what Marlene has been saying about needing to integrate this is really important um, because we, um, uh, you know, if we're a side B view person, we're in danger of losing the power and the awe of God. And for us to do the social justice work that needs to be done, we need to be 100% plugged in to that holiness and that power. Mm -hmm to be able to actually fight evil effectively, you know? Absolutely. So one of the other things that I was thinking of while you were talking a little bit ago, Gail, <laughs> is how much America currently is similar to the Israelites. Because we've been blessed. We've had God's blessing on us. We've had good things to where we get to the point where we started taking a lot of those things for granted. And this year has challenged that. This year has said, what if some of these things you've been taking for granted got taken away? Where's your trust then? Where's your faith then? And um, we've grumbled <laughs> instead of, instead of trusting God like we're supposed to do, we've complained. We've uh, grumbled about things that really don't matter in the um, larger scheme of things. <laughs> and um, we've been selfish. Well, and I, I think that we have um, actually fallen into a trap of worshiping um, money and as our secure our source of security and I think mm -hmm. um, Christianity and um, and our and all, a lot of us have have gone off the rails as a result of that a lot of people are in a nation building but they're building the wrong nation yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and we are like you know and, and we are like yeast the Bible says often um, and Jesus says you know that even though we're small, think about how little, when you make a loaf of bread, you need yeast about like the size of the end of my thumb. Just a smallest amount makes a whole loaf of bread. And so us doing this study and learning these things and being uh, mindful of ourselves and of the need that we might have to swing the pendulum one way or the other, um, makes a big difference. We're just one, I'm just one person. You're just one person. But what we do is like yeast in the world. 
So I'm going to have to go. I'm going to have to stop it there. I love you guys so much. Such a great discussion. And um, I'll see you next week. Bye. 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 Bye.